Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. Together, we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research and to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported. We also try to make it clear we're giving when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together. We do talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way that people have hard conversations, and we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope that you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. Seen the trend of the Grundy County auction song on Reels? No. It's a. It's basically Gen Zs being astonished that millennials know all the words. Is that the? That's the super the, fast. Hey, pretty lady, won't you give yeah. me a sign? Yeah. I'd do anything to make you mine on mine. I'd... Yeah. Like literally one Hold of the best songs. Hold on, I gotta remember the lyrics. You're written in B at your begging call. Exactly. I've never seen anyone looking so fine. Girl, I gotta have you. You're one of a kind. I'm going once, going twice. I'm sold to the lady in the second row. She's an eight. She's a nine. She's a ten. I know. She got ruby red lips, blonde hair, blue eyes, and I'm about to kiss my heart goodbye. Yeah. Nailed it. Yeah. I'm not gonna hold it. that note, but yeah. Yeah, I freaking love that song. Anyway. I know. Welcome to millennials actually being cool for once. Yeah. I know lyrics and I can speak them fast. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for joining us this week. It is the third Monday in November, which means this is our second second episode mm-hmm. because yeah. uh, it was going to be our third. Uh, sorry, it's our second episode as part of Native American Heritage Month. It was going to be our third, but as we mentioned last week in our short little blurb, um, <laughs> the last two weeks kind, kind of uh, fell apart pretty hard. Um, and yeah, still kind of bouncing back from that. So we are again, truly sorry to have missed a week, uh, especially, especially when one short month to highlight all of native American history and heritage is not near enough to even begin to talk about anything properly. However, we are going to make sure we hit the next several episodes as hard as humanly possible. So we can finish the month strong. That said, this week, we're bringing you an in-depth breakdown of the whole situation concerning the protests at Standing Rock Reservation over the Dakota Access Pipeline and the significance of the land to both parties and where things stand right now. Yeah. I mean, I know that when we were talking about what to highlight for Native American Heritage Month, this popped into my head because I felt like even though... I saw it pretty consistently for over a month in 2017. I didn't have any clue what was going on. Yeah. I didn't understand the issue. And so 
I had this kind of instinctive feeling that surely it had to be more than just the issue of a pipeline. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Right. Oh, we were not wrong. No, (laughs) turns out. Yeah. Crazy. I know, um, actually, if I think uh, Andy, when she was on several sessions ago, mentioned this, that she had gone as part of the uh, as part of the protest. She actually helped out there. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, And uh, so I, I was actually pretty aware of it happening at the time. And um, because my one, I had friends directly involved in it. Um, unfortunately, though, that was probably the only reason I was aware of it. Yeah. There's a lot that goes on. And unfortunately, stuff like that gets buried pretty easily. It does, um, as does the history behind stories like this. And so um, we probably should just give this disclaimer anytime we're talking about history, especially in the context of a Native American history or Black American history. But before we get started with the episode, we we do want to mention that there is discussion of and some fairly clear descriptions of violence in the context of battles and massacres that occurred historically and then in the context of contemporary protests. Um, we're not real big fans of graphic violence. We try not to include that, if at all possible, um, to give you the story without it. But Sometimes, and in this situation, it does include violence against women and children. So if that makes you uncomfortable, we totally get it. It makes us incredibly uncomfortable as well. Uh, So we're going to try to leave you some time notations in the episode description to help you decide what to listen to and what to skip past. Again, nothing graphic. I can't handle that as a human being. It's just not a thing that I can handle. So we keep it as as made for TV as possible in our descriptions, but... Still, we want to recognize that that can be that can be very uncomfortable for a lot of people. Right. Um, so I, in case you didn't pay attention to anything in 2016 or 2000, uh, early 2017, or you were distracted by ongoing um, existential worry due to recent political (laughs) events that shall go unmentioned in this episode. Um, Basically, Standing Rock, the protests at Standing Rock, were um, what started out as a group of uh, indigenous Americans protesting uh, a a oil pipeline that was crossing uh, nearby their land uh, or over their land, which we'll get into in a little bit, Mm -hmm. depending on who you talk to. Um, It eventually boiled down to specifically where it crossed across the, uh, my cat just distracted me in the middle of this, (laughs) that that sentence, and it totally wiped the name out of my head, Um, where it crossed across the Lake Oahe uh, Reservoir, um, which is on the Missouri River. And this reservoir is a water so water source, excuse me, um, for <clears throat> sorry for the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. And long story short, the Standing Rock Sioux did not want this uh, pipeline going through there mm-hmm. for what should probably be obvious reasons. And the company behind the Dakota Access Pipeline, uh, this this oil pipeline passing through there. They said, we don't care. We got all of our papers signed. 
and uh, we're going to do it anyway. And so there were months and months of protests that originally swelled uh, to thousands of protesters and uh, some conflict that we'll talk about near uh, the midpoint, I think, of this episode. Um, So, yeah, you probably saw some of the uh, most obvious coverage of it with uh, people in like rain jackets with umbrellas in the middle of a icy field. Like I'm pretty sure there was snow on the ground (laughs) um, getting sprayed with water hoses with fire all around them um, and tear gas canisters going off. So absolutely. And uh, I I feel like in the media when they were first talking about it, it was really framed as a juxtaposition between the the native people, the Standing Rock Sioux tribe, who wanted, they almost painted it as though they wanted to halt progress, right? It was this juxtaposition between the old and the new progress yeah. and history. Um, and then in the midst of that, there was talk of environmental impact. And it, yeah. everything got really muddy because it it was really framed as that conflict between capitalism and progress and man versus nature and exactly like classic classic conflict in literature right so it sells exactly but but like we know about every narrative that we see in the media they frame it that way because that's what sells that's yeah. what we key into and the story behind it is is actually very different where do we go from here <laughs> how, how are we breaking this one down right okay so i think i think we have to start with the real actual history because to really understand the controversy behind the protests at Standing Rock and the fight over the Dakota Access Pipeline, we have to understand the history of mistrust and of negligence that marks the relationship between our First Nations people and the United States government. Because this isn't just a philosophical struggle over the potential impact of a long-distance crude oil pipeline. This situation brings to the forefront centuries-old efforts of Native Americans to have their sovereign rights respected and to see the treaties that they made with the United States government honored. So, time machine? Time machine. We really do need some sort of a sound effect for this. Yeah, unfortunately, the only one I can think of is instantly recognizable and highly copyrighted. So... That will be a problem for future John. Yeah, that's such a good sound, though. Nope, it's off limits. Uh, Fine, fine. Okay, well, I'll just start telling the story then. In our last episode, where we shared the backstory behind the creation of Yellowstone National Park and the other national parks in the West that followed, we briefly mentioned the Treaty of Fort Laramie as a precursor to the creation of the park. And though clashes between the Native American tribes and settlers and soldiers were regular occurrences all throughout the first half of the 1800s, seven, uh, several high-profile incidents between 1864 and 1868 really created a sense of urgency to stop the violence. The Treaty of Fort Laramie, which is also called the Sioux Treaty of 1868, was intended to be the resolution of nearly a decade of conflict between Native American tribes, settlers, and United States soldiers pushing for westward expansion. When when we think of the 1860s in the United States, most of us, myself included, um, we have a sort of historical tunnel vision. <laughs> we really focus heavily on the Civil War. 
and the epic and horrible battles fought between the Confederacy and the Union over whose ideologies would govern our nation. But at the same time that the North and the South were locked in conflict, settlers, uh, supported by members of the United States Army, were pushing west into, quote, Indian territory. For the most part, they were trappers and miners looking for wealth in the Black Hills and beyond. Some were settlers looking to build a new life in big sky country, but all of them were trespassing on land already occupied by Native American peoples. The increasing numbers of people moving west and the violations of trust and treaties as the United States sought to support these people um, led directly to a few major incidents that caught the attention of the federal government and led to an official pursuit of peace. Um, one such incident was the massacre at Sand Creek, Colorado in 1864. Um, I didn't know about this until very recently. Um, yeah. But Sand Creek sits about 30 miles west of the Colorado border with Kansas. And in the early 1860s, it was on the literal edge of civilization. Rebel troops were moving west in an effort to disrupt Union trade routes and take over the newly discovered gold fields in the area. And Union troops were following them and engaging but as the soldiers pressed deeper into this uncharted territory, contact and conflict with native tribes in the area increased. In summer of 1864, these tensions came to a head when a white family was murdered near Denver and raiding Cheyenne or Arapaho were named as the culprits. The territorial governor at the time, John Evans, called on local citizens to kill and destroy hostile natives and ordered all friendly Indians to seek out, quote, places of safety like U.S. forts to declare their amity. And to enforce these decrees, Evans raised a new regiment led by a victorious Union colonel named John Chivington. Local Cheyenne chief Black Kettle, who was known for being a peacemaker, gathered other allied chiefs in the area and initiated talks with white authorities. They should, they were advised remain in their camp at Sand Creek until the fort commander received further orders. Uh, but Governor Evans was set on the chastisement of all the natives in the area. Uh, Colonel Chivington had his eyes set on further military glory with the hopes that it would help him win a seat in Congress, and Chivington's unit was hungry for action. They were mocked by other troops as the Bloodless Third Regiment. Their enlistment was also about to end without battle. So this isn't the focus of the episode, but we like to highlight how intersectionality plays into everything we're fighting about <laughs> or, or ignoring, as the case may be, uh, in our society. And this touches on something that I've been wanting to talk about forever. Like since we started the show, mm -hmm. I think I've mentioned it a couple of times and we still haven't done it yet. And that is the concept of toxic masculinity. So just a disclaimer here, since people love to completely misunderstand what toxic masculinity is and what it's about, <coughs> Josh Hawley, <clears throat> masculinity in and of itself is not toxic. There exists a subset of traits that can lead to extreme attitudes and behaviors that are toxic. 
Carpentry, not toxic. Growing awesome facial hair, not toxic. Working with your hands, not toxic. Thinking that not doing these things makes you less of a man, toxic. Judging others by an arbitrary and silent scale of masculinity, toxic. And mocking your fellow soldiers because they haven't suffered the horrors of combat, toxic AF. And in this context, all I can think is, did this mentality contribute to what we're about to discuss? Did the desire to show how manly they were, how amazing they were at combat, magnify what happened next? We'll never know, but we should wonder. So back to the story of history. <laughs> On the night of November 28th, John Chivington led roughly 700 men on a ride to Sand Creek. And at dawn, they attacked. Late on the night of November 29, Chivington sent word to his superior saying, at daylight this morning, attacked Cheyenne village of 130 lodges from 900 to 1,000 warriors strong. He said his men waged a furious battle against armed and entrenched combatants and that the conflict ended in a great victory, including the deaths of several chiefs and between 400 and 500 Indians, the almost annihilation of the entire tribe. And his troops and their triumph were met with celebrations when they returned to Denver, displaying scalps that they had taken from fallen tribesmen. But the narratives turned sour very quickly, when a very different take on the situation came to light. Captain Silas Sewell, whose men rode with Chivington to Sand Creek, told a story of an ambush and betrayal. He was so appalled by the attack that he refused to fire a single shot during the massacre, and he wouldn't order his men into action. He recalled the brutality of the attack, noting Hundreds of women and children were coming towards us and getting on their knees for mercy, only to be murdered by men professing to be civilized. He wrote that the soldiers not only took scalps, but cut off the ears and private parts of chiefs and squaws to keep as trophies. Sewell explained that the natives weren't fighting from trenches, they were digging into the banks of the creek to hide or fleeing on foot. He estimated that 200 natives were killed that day and that all but 60 of them were women and children. Sewell's report, along with a similar report by another soldier at the scene, reached Washington in early 1865 and sparked investigations by both Congress and the military. Despite his testimony that it was impossible to tell peaceful from hostile natives, a congressional committee ruled that Chivington had deliberately planned and executed a foul and dastardly massacre of Indians who had every reason to believe that they were under U.S. protection. The perception of that betrayal, the idea that the Cheyenne led by Black Kettle did as instructed and that the protection that should have been afforded them was violated, struck a chord in Washington that other conflicts had not. Right. And that's that's big talk for that time. Because, yeah. 
I mean, we were deeply engaged in wars with tribes all across the United States. Um, but the idea that this this one event would would be such a big betrayal. Yeah, somehow this one was the one that was beyond the pale. Yeah. Which, I mean, we are learning yes. a lot about these stories as as we research this month. And there are, this is not really incredibly unique. No, no. Um, so. No, not, not even yeah. within this short time span that we're talking about that's highly relevant to the issue at Standing Rock. It's yeah. not even all that unique. Um, but yeah. So shortly after the massacre at Sand Creek, another conflict caught the attention of the U.S. government. On December 21, 1866, a group of Oglala Sioux and Cheyenne destroyed a command of 80 men along the Bozeman Trail. And when I say destroyed, the word that is used in the text was annihilated. To a man. Uh, the Bozeman Trail was a 250-mile pathway that led from Fort Laramie in what is now Wyoming to the gold fields of the Montana Territory. And that, that occurrence uh, shocked the attention of the nation. This was the first strike of what would become a two-year campaign against, well, pretty much anybody who tried to occupy the area, which the, the context for that is that that trail crossed the best hunting grounds for the Northern Plains Indians. The trail itself was constructed in 1863, and it itself was in violation of the terms of the 1851 Fort Laramie Treaty, which was negotiated between the United States and representatives of eight tribal nations. And that treaty acknowledged that all of the land covered by the treaty belonged to the Native nations. So that's why they were so actively defending this. This was the most prime hunting ground. This is what supported their people group in accordance with a treaty that had already been signed. Right. Um, so and this, violated. And, and violated. Correct. So this group was led, or some people would say inspired, the kind of accounts vary, by an Oglala chief named Red Cloud. And he brought together an allied group of Brule and Oglala and Teton Sioux, Arapaho and Cheyenne, and they put up an effective resistance against settlers in the area around the Powder River, including those at three U.S. military forts, Fort Kearney, Fort Reno, and Fort C.F. Smith, which had all been established to protect the new settlers seeking wealth in that area. Even wagon trains and mowing details were targets of Red Clown's band. The men scared travelers away from the Montana Trail throughout the fall of 1867, and then they skirmished with army soldiers several times before battling them in mid-December outside of Fort Kearney itself. Now, word about Red Cloud and his warriors got back to Washington pretty quickly, uh, and by summer 1867, Congress had authorized a commission to seek out and make peace with combatant tribes. They were spurred on by these incidents and the findings of an investigation into the conditions of the First Nations tribes that would come to be known as the Doolittle Report. The investigation was led by Senator James Doolittle. It took nearly two years to complete, and the resulting report contained a mass of documents, over 500 pages in length, 
that described in detail the deterioration of the Indians' condition and the causes of Indian hostility, which they believed could largely be traced to the aggressions of lawless white men. The bill was centered around the goal of concentrating all Plains Indians' tribes onto two reservations, one north of the state of Nebraska, west of the Missouri River, and east of the routes to Montana in what is now the Dakotas, and the other one south of Kansas and west of Arkansas. Within the span of two years, the commission met and negotiated with more than 20 tribal groups at Fort Laramie. As a part of this peacemaking process, Red Cloud, among others, received an invitation to rendezvous with the commission at Fort Laramie, and in response, he sent a messenger called Manafraid to inform the commission that Red Cloud would not consent to a meeting until the Powder River hunting ground was secured and the three forts there were relinquished. He told the commission, when we see the soldiers moving away and the forts abandoned, then I will come down and talk. The generals eventually agreed, and negotiations proceeded. Red Cloud is well known as one of the only chiefs to ever actually gain concessions from the United States government in one of these negotiations. Um, He also made them wait through the winter hunting season so that he could finish hunting. Just a badass. I know. I kind of, I'm in love with the story. Um, So by early July, the 1868 Treaty of Fort Laramie had been signed by the intended tribal representatives and the plan to concentrate primarily the Sioux tribes began to take shape. However, despite their impression that the agreements being made would lead to permanent land gains, there was still significant hesitance among the tribal leaders that the United States government would keep its word. Chief Gall, a formidable and determined Sioux leader who was also a very vocal opponent of the treaty, warned those in attendance at a treaty council, if we make peace, you will not hold it. And, of course... Those words proved to be prophetic. In 1874, barely more than five years later, General George Custer led an expedition into the Black Hills in search of gold. Once gold was discovered there, miners flocked to the area and began demanding protection from the United States Army. Soon, the Army began to engage with the bands of Sioux hunters exercising their hunting rights on the land. And then in 1876, Custer and his detachment encountered the encampment of Sioux and Cheyenne at the Little Bighorn River. Custer's detachment was, well, annihilated. But in response, the United States would continue its fight against the Sioux in the Black Hills, eventually confiscating that land in 1877. And to this day, the ownership of the Black Hills is an ongoing legal dispute between the Sioux nations and the United States. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a story for the other, for another time, but that that con- conflict of ownership interests and who owns what land is is uh, it's a theme that is repeated continually through multiple tribal interactions with the US government. Right. Um, And it comes into play with this Dakota Access Pipeline. So let's talk about that a little bit. The 
The construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline began when the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers accepted an application uh, filed by the Energy Transfer Partners. Energy Transfer Partners, or Energy Transfer LP, is a, is a Texas-based developer specializing in natural gas and propane pipeline transport. The Dakota Access Pipeline is a nearly 1,200-mile-long underground pipeline that runs from North Dakota through South Dakota, through Iowa, and then terminates in Southern Illinois. How does that tie into the story we just told you? Well, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe hold that the Dakota Access Pipeline violates Article 2 of the Fort Laramie Treaty that was so hard fought for by, uh, by Red Cloud. So... To summarize, and I, I cut a lot of this out, but the important parts of Article 2 are that the United States agrees that the following district of country, and then it lists the area of concern of the treaty, the, the northern one that we described earlier, shall be set apart for the absolute and undisturbed use and occupation of the Indians herein named. And for such other friendly tribes or individual Indians as from time to time they may be willing, with the consent of the United States, to admit amongst them. And the United States now solemnly agrees that no persons, except those herein designated and authorized so to do, and except such officers, agents, and employees of the government as may be authorized to enter upon Indian reservations, in discharge of duties enjoined by law, shall ever be permitted to pass over, settle upon, or reside in the territory described in this article, or in such territory as may be added to this reservation for the use of said Indians, and henceforth they will and do hereby relinquish all claims or right in and to any portion of the United States or territories. I oh, gotta love that treaty language. I did it. I, I tried to make that as understandable <laughs> as I could. It, I mean, the the short, short version of that is basically, we're going to leave you alone on this land. Mm -hmm. We're not going to do anything. You can bring people into it if you want. We're going to have to sign off on it, but otherwise it's yours. We're just not going to send anybody in there uh, except for people who are doing the, the business of the United States. Uh, other than that, it's all yours. Right. Yeah. This is yours. That's ours. Everyone has their own stuff. Yeah. So the key part of that treaty, though, that the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe's argument hinges on is that wording of undisturbed use and occupation of reservation and lands that are included in the treaty. So in plain language, this means the ability to live on and use lands without being disturbed by anyone else. The pipeline runs through a portion of the treaty lands that the Standing Rock Sioux argue was taken from them in 1958 without consent. And in 1980, a Supreme Court ruling did find that the Black Hills had been unfairly seized. The United States offered financial compensation for that loss, but the Sioux refused they asked instead for ownership or co-ownership of the land and to exercise their right to be consulted when a federal agency is evaluating a construction project that incorporates land to which Native peoples attach a religious or cultural significance. 
which that is a right that is granted to Native American peoples, regardless of the location of the project, by the way. They, if there is a construction project that uh, that they claim infringes or um, violates or goes through culturally important or religious uh, land to them, they have the right to uh, be consulted in as part hmm. of the project. Um, I'm not sure how effectively that right is upheld. Um, right? I have a guess. Exactly. Uh, and I bet we can all guess how often the rights of the United States take precedence over the rights of the First Nations people, but they at least are supposed to have that consultation right. So like we talked about earlier, originally the pipeline was supposed to cross the Missouri River near Bismarck, North Dakota. Authorities there worried that an oil spill would have contaminated the drinking water for the capital city. So the pipeline was moved to pass within a half mile of the current border of treaty lands, crossing the Missouri River at the Lake Oahe Reservoir. The Standing Rock Sioux opposed the construction of the pipeline, on the grounds that an oil spill would threaten their water supply, sacred lands, cultural resources, and burial grounds. The tribe argued that the government didn't undertake the required consultation for this project at all. If they had, they would have learned that the pipeline path would have required digging up these lands and that it would run the significant risk of poisoning the tribes of the Oahe Reservoir in the event of a leak. What followed was a months-long protest that started with a handful of protesters in April attempting to slow the development of the pipeline and swelled to thousands of people from across the nation gathering in solidarity with the Standing Rock Sioux. National media outlets began coverage in earnest in September 2016, but it had been going on since April mm -hmm. of 2016, and well, at least the protests had been going on. Um, but in September, that is when a private security force employed by Energy Transfer Partners alleged that uh, protesters camping near the construction site broke into the construction site. The security force was using guard dogs, and those dogs proceeded to bite to attack six protesters, including a small child. The company stated that the protesters attacked their workers and guard dogs, however. And that is what led to this, these, these bites. Not long after, bulldozers basically, I mean, they plowed through burial grounds that the tribe had identified to a federal judge in a court filing that was an attempt to slow the project down. The judge was supposed to rule on this petition um, after a long holiday weekend, hmm. but energy transfer partners didn't wait. The clash continued um, basically until November. And that is when we got those famous uh, or infamous, really, images of clashes between protesters and law enforcement. Um, so essentially what happened is as temperatures were dropping below freezing, law enforcement fired on protesters with tear gas and water cannons, saying that the protesters had started fires in the area and were throwing rocks at officers. The protesters countered and they said the fires were started by the police's projectiles, which I can tell you those those tear gas canisters get very, very, very hot. Um, so that would not surprise me mm -hmm. at all. 
the number of injured was estimated to be in the hundreds for this encounter. And it really all started when the protesters were trying to clear some burned out vehicles from a bridge. Uh, so allegedly, uh, they claim, so that emergency medical services could get to these camps faster because the bridge was the only route to the protest camps. And without it there, it took... Um, ambulances, for example, 30 minutes longer to get to the protesters. So they were, they were trying to clear a path, and that escalated into this horrific night, really. This situation marked a climax in direct conflict between the protesters and law enforcement. And a few days after this confrontation, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers told protesters to leave some of their encampments by December 5th, and then North Dakota Governor Jack Dalrymple issued an evacuation order for the area due to the harsh weather. Many people left, but also many stayed. And the battle continued largely in the courts until March 7th of 2017, when U.S. District Judge James Boasberg denied the motion by the Standing Rock Sioux and the Cheyenne River Sioux for a preliminary injunction against the pipeline company. District Judge Boasberg explained that he believed that the tribes were unlikely to prevail in their lawsuits. That being said, he's still actively involved in overseeing various lawsuits being brought by the tribes. Even as recently as June 23, 2021, the judge dismissed a lawsuit by the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, but outlined a path for future legal challenges to an ongoing environmental review should the tribes seek to make such a challenge. For their part, <laughs> the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline Defenders, which read read that as energy transfer, right. literally the company, because they host the website that I got this information from that is, <laughs> that is totally unbiased and called Dakota Access Pipeline Facts. Oh, um, totally unbiased. Totally unbiased, right? Yeah. Um, they hold that the pipeline is the safest, most environmentally friendly method for moving oil across the country. They argue that the pipeline takes 3,000 tanker trucks and 815 rail cars off the roads every day, including trains and trucks that would drive through uh, this treaty territory. Um, they also argue that the pipeline doesn't cross Standing Rock Sioux land, uh, as we mentioned, the land that it does go through had been uh, reacquired by the United mm -hmm. States in the 50s, um, and that it also doesn't encroach on the Standing Rock Sioux's water supply because their or their water supply um, access because their their inlet basically had been moved 75 miles away from the pipeline. They also hold that this entire argument is rather um, uh, farcical or trumped up mm. uh, because there are two existing non-affiliated pipelines that already run under the uh, Lake Oahe uh, Reservoir that is really the focus of the majority of the protest, and nobody has raised any problems with those two. Um, that said... <laughs> I could only find mention of these pipelines being uh, natural gas pipelines, mm. which has a significantly smaller environmental impact in the event of a leak. Right. So that might be why it's less of a concern. 
for right. people there. There's also the distinct possibility that publication of this pipeline, or sorry, the pipeline wasn't publicized as it was being installed. Yeah. Um, we live in an age of incredible access to a broad amount of information. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I, I As I was reading through these facts and, and trying to put this together, it really struck me that energy transfer doesn't get what the protest is actually about right like their arguments their facts have they they don't address the core of the issue which is the the well specifically the um the standing rock sioux feel like they weren't consulted and that they're being yet again uh, forced to take on the risk over mm-hmm. um, white America, white white America, basically, and that yet again a treaty that was signed in good faith is being ignored, right, um, and stomped on. Yeah, and and it, it the symptom, right? The symptom is this pipeline, but the root hurt is that ongoing and over and over again violation of trust yeah 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 and it's it's i feel only going to continue to escalate not necessarily this pipeline although um as we mentioned there is litigation still ongoing Mm -hmm. about this this specific pipeline um at one point operation was actually like this year 2021 operation of the pipeline was uh, ordered to stop and the pipe was ordered to be emptied uh, judicial order um, so that a a more robust environmental impact study could be done because the judge held that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineer hadn't actually fulfilled their obligations to do a full um, environmental impact study and hadn't actually uh, spoken with the tribes uh, in consultation like they were supposed to or hadn't fulfilled their obligation. Um, but this was, of course, challenged by energy transfer up to the circuit court, and the circuit court has stayed that that order mm-hmm. um, while, it, while it gets the shutdown order, I should say, um, while the uh, impact review is being carried out, from right. what I understand. Yes. There's like a million articles out there and I tried to get them so all in many. chronological order, yeah. but there's, and, there's a lot. And there's a, there's current conflict over the, the people in the organization conducting that environment, environmental impact study as well. Um, with many of the standing rock Sioux tribe members claiming that they're not actually doing a good job, that they're biased in their inspection and that the, the goal outcome of this is to do whatever it takes to find that this pipeline will not have a negative environmental impact on their land. Right. Um, Which obviously they, they are, they are also biased. Right. Um, no offense to any of them who might be listening. Um, but you know, they have obvious interest right. in, and the finding going their way. Obviously, we're pretty biased too. We have dedicated the vast majority of this podcast discussing <laughs> this issue from the perspective right. of the Standing Rock Sioux. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
And we get it. We're acknowledging <laughs> that because yeah. I feel like, you know, very often there are months and months and months on the year when we can talk about everybody's interests equally. Um, but well, and I guess that that helps us answer the question too, like why if all of this happened in 2016, 2017, and we're mostly fighting court battles, why are we talking about this now? Um, and that's that's just because, first and foremost, we're talking about this in November. November is Native American and Alaskan Indian Heritage Month, and it's a time for us to shine a brighter light on the experiences of First Nations people. That's what we're trying to do with the perspective of this episode. Um, we are trying to highlight the ways that Americans need to grow and change to create a society that is as equitable for Native Americans as it is for those of us who settled the land much, much later. <laughs> um, and, and it's a time that we can bring current issues facing Native people to the forefront and have those conversations amplified by context, simply yeah. by the context of it being Native American Indian Heritage Month the conversations around these issues are amplified and brought more to the forefront. Right. And I would just like to, to, to point out that this particular uh, story is emblematic of many, many other stories and the overall relationship that the, the, the first nations peoples have had with the, the governments under which they find themselves now, mm -hmm. which is the United States. Yes, but also includes uh, Canada and the the many 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 horrific problems that the the First yeah. Nations people in Canada have had with the Canadian government. It's not unique to the United States, no. and that's that's not even looking at the indigenous people of of Mexico of the of Central America at large um, and the struggles that they've had to go with. So it's just it's an it's a uh, exemplar. Of yes. the many, many struggles. Yeah. It's just it is just another example of the fact that our First Nations people are still fighting to have the rights that were granted to them by the government of the United States actually recognized. Um it, it's it's another example of the fact that those rights are all well and good until the United States government finds something that would be more valuable or more profitable to them. And then those rights are back to being highly negotiable or completely ignored. Right. And any government that can set aside their promise, their rights that they, that they say have been granted to any population group when it is convenient is a government that will also set aside your rights when your rights become inconvenient for them. Correct. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, people, it, it gets talked about quite often that that First Nations people, that Native American tribes are sovereign nations, right? These are, are sovereign groups of people inside of the United States of America. And so when we think about the way that the United States government deals with them and negotiates with them, imagine if you swapped in a different ally, for the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, right? If we were to be having this conversation with Great Britain or with Israel or with Mexico, all of these different countries on which, with which we deal all the time, if we were to be this flexible with 
our treaty agreements and with the rights that we say that they can have on our land and the rights that we have on their land that would lead to wars, right? International conflict. Yeah. At the very least, nobody would ever trust us ever for anything. Treaties, business, what other wars unrelated to the fact that we cannot be depended on to uphold our treaties? Like, it is a disaster. Right. It is a disaster that we are treating a sovereign people like this. Yeah. It's so, it, yeah. And that's, that's why we're talking about this still now today, four years later, because we're living in a time when we as Americans are working to demand change and recognition for other marginalized groups. So it's only right that we step up to demand recognition of the many agreements that our government has made with the tribal nations from which we took so very much. And I feel like um, I should introduce everyone to my soapbox at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Which like I one one of many. Yeah. But I I personally feel incredibly strong about this. Um, and so that's why we're talking about it. Yep. Because it's our podcast. That's right. So if you agree with us, you can let us know. How do we do that? Zip. How do you do that? <laughs> we have a website. Firesidebreakdowns.com. It's awesome. We worked really hard on it. We did a photo session. Mm-hmm. We're gonna have to do another one at some point because I hate all of the pictures. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No yeah. offense to the photographer. No. Just a comment on myself. Um yeah. If he's listening, John, the reason that I don't get back to you with edits very soon is because I get distracted looking at my hair and all of them and then I want to throw them all away. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, anyway, yeah, if you'd like to see the, us us being our awkward best in these pictures and trying to look really cool and reliable, <laughs> you should check out that website, the About Us section, Pure Gold. Pure Gold. Um, there's also, uh, you can find our show, no- show notes. You can find, you can listen to the podcast there if you like to stream from a browser. Uh, you can find our Patreon We are currently trying to raise enough funds so that we can hire an editor. So to, in order to take the workload off of our own shoulders a little bit, um, if you've been thinking about doing it, but you're not sure, please, now is the time, especially going into the holiday season. It is about to get incredibly, incredibly hectic for both of us. Mm -hmm. Um, so having some additional hands on deck would certainly help. You can also find links to our social media there facebook instagram technically twitter we still need to update our twitter art to the new brand and logo because <laughs> it's currently still the old stuff that's how active we are on twitter we're guys. so good at twitter guys listen we're still we're, we're actually getting much better at instagram that's the money spot it is. that's where you want to be it tell is. your friends tell your neighbors mm-hmm. um but yeah please check it out yeah definitely and i think with that we're going to talk about some good news because we actually have some good news this week. Yeah. Fresh, hot off the presses as of today. Today. Although I well, the day we recorded. Yeah, exactly. Which, yeah. I do want to mention, though, that if you are at all interested in the super awesome playlist that was mentioned at the top of this episode and that little digression that we had when we forgot we were actually recording a podcast episode, that is accessible to our patrons. 
Um, every time we find cool songs, we put it on there. It's a delightfully chaotic mess. Wild playlist. Of awesome, cool things that you can listen to in dedicated chunks or you can just put on random and let it surprise you. Um, but that is patron exclusive. So that's awesome. Good news. What's that good news, Rob? Yes. Our good news today seems very fitting, considering that as of time of air, Veterans Day was last Thursday. Um, and we do want to say a very heartfelt thank you for your service to all of the veterans in our audience. Uh, we do wish that we could do more than just say thank you. Right now, there's only so much that we can do through the podcast. And we know that words often can feel hollow, but really from the bottom of our hearts, uh, thank you so much you for so everything much. you have been willing to give for us. Thank you. How does this tie into Native American and Alaskan Indian Heritage Month, I hear you asking? Well, for the first time in nearly 100 years, the guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier is allowing civilians to approach and lay flowers in recognition. Normally, that is a privilege that is only given to the Sentinels of the 3rd U.S. Infantry Regiment, also called the Old Guard. But early on the morning of November 9th, eight members of the Chief Plenty Coup Honor Guard from Pryor, Montana, approached one by one in full regalia to place a flower at the tomb. Um, and if you have never seen full regalia, you need to go and Google that because this is not just, um, this is no small deal for them to yeah. show up in full regalia to do this. They are from the, and I'm going to try to say this as correctly as possible. I even watched a video. <laughs> the Upsalaga, or more colloquially, the Crow Nation. Dozens more Crow Nation representatives, including students from the Plenty Coup High School, also followed suit. Um, and that group is important because President Warren G. Harding and the U.S. War Department invited Crow Chief Plenty Coup to say a few words at the 1921 dedication of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. So Full circle. Yes. 100 years in the making. I thought it was pretty neat. That is really awesome. And I'm definitely going to find pictures immediately. Yeah. yeah. I, I, uh, there are some really good ones. Uh, uh, if you're interested in that, check out the sources uh, on our website. Uh, the, the source for that particular story is listed. Um, and there are pictures and videos. And it's pretty cool. Yes. Pretty, pretty cool. But that's it for us. It is currently midnight o'clock my time. And I have to be at work and Robin has to be at a, on a plane in hours that you can almost count on one hand for both of us. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> we will talk to all of you next week. Thank you so much for hanging with us again. Apologies for missing last week, uh, but we did have to take care of ourselves. And in that spirit, I do hope that all of you take care of each other.